Welcome to Is It Bedtime Yet with Dr. Serene and Dr. Jen. We wanted to touch on something we talked about last week briefly, Mm -hmm. Um, the immigration issue that we've been going through these last couple of months where children and parents are being separated. We did touch on that very briefly. You're right. I feel like last week we didn't really touch on it all that much because I really think we were both still processing what was going on. It was really fresh. Yeah. And the images were just coming in. There were so many images constantly being populated on media and social right. media and of children crying. And It was intense. It was intense. And Jen and I both come from from cultures who have been oppressed in the past. And marginalized and, and discriminated against. And I think seeing those images did bring up a lot. Yeah. And I remember... And one conversation I was having with you privately, not on the podcast, was, Jen, this totally looks like 2018 concentration camps. And it did to, I mean, to me at least. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm Armenian. So there's the Armenian genocide that I've always been taught about and seen images of, you know, children being taken or worse. But the, the... just the thought of children being separated from their families, their parents. Absolutely. And I think brought up a lot for me. And Yeah, and I'm Jewish, and just the stories I've heard about the Holocaust, and my grandfather was, was in Europe during the Holocaust, and he was separated from his family. There was all sorts of stuff that went down. Uh, he was being sent to concentration camps and was able to escape. So it, it brought up a lot of stuff for me. And then I know for both of us as parents, um, it adds this additional layer of seeing these children who are being separated from their parents being treated this way. And then there's no way to not imagine being in that situation or it being your own kids. And feeling helpless, wanting to help somehow, but not really being able to. I mean, there aren't really, there's places you can donate to. And um, I know Jen, you sent me a bunch of resources that night. Right. We were both kind of just privately talking about it and we felt stuck. Yeah. but there's not much, it seems like, we can do. Right. Um, but regardless on your position on immigration or your political ideas or whatever your views are, mm-hmm. um, that's not what we really wanted to talk about, and we wanted to make that clear. Right. It's more of an issue of humanity and knowing that it's all people, regardless of who they are, and right. they're being treated this way, they're being separated from their parents. It's it's really it's heartbreaking to, to watch. It is heartbreaking. And it's hard. And we've talked about how to incorporate that in our podcast. And there's no way other than to just say that this is happening and we acknowledge it and we wish we could do more and we hope it gets resolved. We hope Mm -hmm. there is an end in sight, but we feel helpless and probably just as helpless as any other parent or person listening or witnessing uh, witnessing what's happening. Right seeing the images, reading the stories. Definitely. Well, so we encourage you guys to keep talking about it if this is something that's really important for you, um, to talk to family, friends, anybody who you feel like could be supportive, seek out a therapist if it's something that you feel like is is necessary. And there's no easy way to transition from a topic like this, Um, but we're going to have to move on. And so let's get into today's topic. Today, we're going to be talking about the unique challenges of parenting with kids with special needs. Today's special guest is Andrea Laurent. She's an advocate and educational consultant in private practice in Los Angeles, California, and the parent of three adult children, two of whom have disabilities. And she also happens to be my mom. Hi, Andrea. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. 
Today, we're going to talk a little bit about not only the challenges that parenting brings in general, but also the unique challenges that are present when you happen to be a parent of children with special needs. And I know that's something that you can definitely speak to. Absolutely. Yeah. So as a parent who has two children with special needs, specifically on the spectrum, how did your concept of being a parent change? Well, I raised a typical child first, so I had the experiences that most parents experience raising a typical child. When my second child came along, things were a little different because my second child progressed much more rapidly in some areas than most children do. And that wasn't a typical experience, and I wasn't quite sure what to do with those things. I had a child who taught himself to read at a very young age and was progressing more rapidly in many areas academically, but socially lagged behind other kids. And that wasn't something I was used to experiencing. Then I had a third child and a second boy whose experiences were quite different, and he was very behaviorally involved, so I was very quick to understand there was something very different going on. Plus, I was fortunate to have had an educational experience that educated me in the autism world, which most people at that time weren't as aware of because people didn't know what autism was in the early 70s the way they do today. So um, I, I was fortunate to have the resources to go to people and ask the questions and get the help. You were saying he was behind socially. Can Mm -hmm. you give some examples? He was extremely immature. Mm -hmm. Here was a child who was in a a gifted magnet program in second grade, but was having tantrums and he would be curled up in the fetal position under the table when he'd get upset. But educationally or... But educationally, he was... um, We had him in a program. We were very fortunate to find a program where there was a K-1-2 class. And as a kindergartner, they had him in the second grade program for reading. Oh, wow. Or in kindergarten, he got to read to the class because they were teaching letters and sounds, and he was reading at a second grade level. So I was fortunate to be able to find programs that could meet his needs, but it got harder and harder as we got to fifth and sixth grade. And then we ended up putting him in private school because there weren't public school programs that could meet his needs. And we'll get more into this Mm -hmm. later, but I imagine that's part of what led you down the road to becoming an advocate. Absolutely. I had to find things that could meet the needs of each of the boys because their needs were so completely different. And so what was that like emotionally for you to have to raise three kids that had such different experiences and as a parent having to adjust your expectations for all three kids? It was a complete roller coaster. And it was a roller coaster in terms of my my career, my social life, my fam- my family life. Um, I had to kind of change my career path. I had been a teacher for 13 years and I became increasingly interested in learning how I could help my children. And as I went down that path, I became more and more interested in not only how I could help my own children, but how I could help other children along the way. And the more I learned, the more I wanted to help others to learn as well. The resources weren't out there. There was no internet. There was no no way to learn other than to go out there and get the information myself. And as I did that, I wanted to be able to impart that same information to other people. So that's what I did. I started job sharing and I only worked part time and I started learning from other people who were doing what I was learning to do. So now that your children are adults, what do you wish you knew back then when your kids were growing up and they were first diagnosed? I wish there was easier access to the information that parents have today. I think parents take for granted how easy it is to get the information now. And parents of of my generation who have kids in their late 20s and 30s, 
I wish we had had the easy availability of being able to get access to the information the way parents do now. You've got Facebook, you've got chat groups, you've got um, social groups that people can have access to with play dates. You've, you've got all kinds of resources at your fingertips, and that didn't exist for us. I mean, I remember one parent whose autistic child happened to be in my typical child's two-year-old program. And she was kind of my mentor. She was the person I, f I followed her lead with my more severe child. And I used her as a resource. And I said, well, what did you do for this? And what did you do for that? And I used her as a guide and a resource. She was the only person I had to go to other than the resources I had at my university from where I had learned you know, about autism. And that was kind of how I forged my path for my own child initially. Well, and piggybacking off of that question, you were talking about how many more resources there are now versus back when you were experiencing this when your kids were first diagnosed. What would you want to tell parents now who are first going through this process, who are first learning that their kids have some kind of diagnosis? Where do they start? Where do they where do they turn to? What do they look for? Because there's all of these resources, but a lot of parents don't know how to access them or what they are. I would say do your homework. Um, don't just listen to other parents. Mm -hmm. Look at the research. Look at, I would start with the universities too. Look at what scientifically based research has said. Don't just say, um, don't just go to other parents who are saying, oh, well, this worked really well for my kid. Every kid is different. Just because one kid needed speech or one kid needed occupational therapy, that doesn't mean that's what your child needs. Talk to doctors, talk to universities. I mean, we've got, in Southern California, we've got some phenomenal resources. I mean, we're very, very fortunate people move to Southern California for the resources here. People move from other countries to Southern California mm -hmm. for some of our resources for many different kinds of disabilities. So look at the resources in the area you live in, and if they aren't there, consider reaching out to the areas where they do exist. And look at the research, look at the kind of progress that's been made based on the research and the results that have come from that research. I mean, I was very fortunate that I grew up in an area that had access to that kind of stuff. I went to UCLA as an undergrad and a graduate student, and UCLA had phenomenal access to a lot of research-based practices. I was very fortunate well, so what, in that. What kind of resources would you recommend that parents start with? Like where, because you're talking about doing some research and everything, mm -hmm. but for parents who don't know where to begin, they're doing research, they're finding out about things, what kinds of specific programs should they be looking for? Depends on the disability. Mm -hmm. Definitely depends on the disability. When you're talking about autism, typically you're starting by looking at ABA. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the explosion of autism is unbelievable. And the question becomes, is it because we're better identifying it these days? Or is it because there's just more autism? Honestly, I believe it's both. Mm -hmm. um, but I work with kids with all different kinds of disabilities. It's not just autism. But uh, I think it's being better identified. We've got better early intervention. We've got the regional center system in the state of California. And that's what I was going to bring up, too. Right. Yeah. You're getting good early intervention. You're getting pediatricians are now picking it up. Use your pediatrician as a resource. They will get you to early intervention. They're the ones who see your kids the most early on. Mm -hmm. Use them as a resource. So having two kids with disabilities, and then you had me first, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts about how you should explain the challenges of kids on the spectrum or kids with other disabilities to your neurotypical kids or to other family members who don't really understand those challenges or to strangers on the strangers, street who right. are watching your kid tantrum and think you just have an out-of-control kid? How would you best encourage other parents to navigate that? I think when you're talking about explaining it to strangers, I don't think it's necessary, to be quite honest. I mean, I know there are angry parents who kind of, you know, 
don't always explain it very nicely. <laughs> um, but the bottom line is, I don't think it's necessary to explain it to a stranger. You're probably not going to see this person again. Mm-hmm. And I know parents sometimes really lose it and say all kinds of things. That makes sense. Um, and, and it's a totally understandable because I've been there and I've done that. But the bottom line is, I look at it as explaining sex to kids. You don't tell them more than they need to know. What you tell them is what's age appropriate. Um, in terms of explaining to siblings, for example, you know, you can explain things like, well, their brain works differently. Everybody's brain is different. And, you know, you give them what is age appropriate. What about extended family members or in families or cultures where mental mm-hmm. health is still taboo? Right. And it's, you know, autism is still taboo. This is just a behavior. It's a bad kid. Right. Um, how does it's parenting care bad parenting? Yeah. How does a parent go about explaining the diagnosis of autism or any other diagnosis to the extended family members? You can only explain as much as they're willing to listen. And you can only get them to understand as much as they're willing to listen. So you can give them the information. What they choose to do with it is up to them. I've, I've dealt with the cultural aspects of that, having extended family that are not all from the United States. And mm-hmm. uh, when the medication issues have come up, you know, we've, we've dealt with that initially that, you know, you can't give them medication. You're going to turn them into zombies, you know. So that was the initial reaction that we got from extended family. And then later on, you know, it was like, how come you didn't give him his meds? I can tell he hasn't had his medication. So <laughs> things flipped pretty radically over time. What would you say have been some of the most challenging moments um, of being a parent with kids with special needs or some of the most rewarding moments? Just what, what moments stand out for you as particularly interesting in either direction? <laughs> well, having more than one child, we, we had to always divide and conquer early on when the kids were little. It would always be like we'd have to take two cars if we were always going somewhere because we knew that, especially with my younger son, sometimes we wouldn't make it through an entire carnival or an entire day at Magic Mountain and that it wasn't really fair to the older kids if, if my younger son couldn't make it through the entire day. Um, I can remember going to Magic Mountain and by the end of the day, my son was knocking over trash cans and we were being escorted off the property by the security guard who took us in the little golf cart back to the parking lot. And my son goes, oh, this was really fun. You know, so if we <laughs> where the rest of us are hiding our faces in shame because right. we're being escorted out of the park. Right. So and he's going, no, the golf cart, it's really fun. Let's do it again. So he's kind of missing the point that, no, it wasn't okay to knock over the golf carts and have a tantrum on the ground. He's, he's thinking, oh, the golf cart's really fun. Let's do this part again. <laughs> so those kinds of things. And I can remember being at school carnivals and, and my younger son would really lose it. And the other kids are having a good time. And it was like one of us had to make the decision who was going to take the little one home and so the other kids could continue having a good time. So we did a lot of those kind of things. Or we'd be at dinner at a restaurant and the older kids were having fun. And my younger son was really having a hard time. So one of us would leave with him so the other kids could stay, especially if we were with another family, because it, it wasn't fair to them that they couldn't have their good time and that, you know, he was losing it. And but we I, did a lot of those kinds of things. I think what was really important for us or for me growing up anyway in our family was that we had we surrounded ourselves with other families who were really close with that we considered extended family and that really understood the challenges that that my brother specifically had. And so they weren't embarrassed by it. They weren't thrown off by it. We went on family trips with them and they were fully, it was normalized for them. So they, they, we weren't embarrassed to be 
around other families when they would have behavioral outbursts. Absolutely. That was the next thing I was going to get to is that family vacations got narrowed down very quickly to only with families who could accept my younger son's behavior Mm -hmm. and weren't put off by it and would be okay with the fact that they knew he was going to have these meltdowns and they weren't going to freak out or, you know, judge us or anything like that. And the people who did do those things pretty quickly dropped off the radar as our family friends and were people that we just lost contact with. And to this day, those are people that we are still friends with and are our extended family and our extended, you know, family friends and the people that we still vacation with. The, the one hardship is that I've lost friends along the way who could not handle my son's behavior. Yeah. That's been one of the hard things. I hadn't even thought of that as being a challenge that a lot of parents might face. Other, mm-hmm. other adults not knowing how mm-hmm. to deal with your child's behavior. Very much so. I can also remember when Jennifer was in Girl Scouts going to people's homes and my son went through somebody's screen door and we were asked not to bring him to the next event and, you know, things like that happened quite often when he was younger and um, lost a lot of friends along the way, but then later on made some phenomenal friends who've become lifetime friends because of having a child with special needs. Mm -hmm. And those are really the quality friends. I mean, and they have become longtime friends and you just... You kind of, you weed out, you weed out the friends because of it. Yeah. I mean, I remember specifically growing up, uh, bringing my friends home and my brother would pop out of a hamper that he had been hiding in and would start hissing at my friends. And so even for me, uh, not as a parent, uh, I had to deal with the challenges of having to explain to my friends what was going on and why my brother was hissing at them. (laughs) And, um, so that was hard. Or stripping naked. Oh, yeah, there was that too. Yeah. yeah. And how receptive do you think your friends were at that time? I mean, it's a bunch of high school kids. So, I mean, they, they probably thought it was hilarious. And I just remember them being like, oh, your brother's weird. And then you just go <laughs> off and do whatever we're going to do. But I could see where if I didn't have more accepting friends, that could have been more of an issue that they might not have wanted to return to, back to my house and right. be subject to getting hissed at <laughs> by by a hamper kid. <laughs> <laughs> Well, those are some challenges. What were some rewarding moments of raising a child or having a brother with autism? Well, Matthew got his driver's license when he turned 16. That was pretty incredible. He was extremely motivated to drive because he saw his brother and sister drive. Mm -hmm. And he was obsessed with cars from an early age. He could look at a an emblem of a car and tell you the make of the car. And pretty soon he could tell you the year the car was made by the model, the body style. He he was pretty into cars for a long time. Um, So he got his driver's license when he turned 16. He took the driving test and he passed the first time and he's been driving since he was 16. He graduated high school with a diploma. He graduated community college after eight years. (laughs) And he's recently been accepted to Cal State Northridge and he's going to start working on his bachelor's degree this fall, which is pretty amazing given that we didn't know, you know, at the age of three or four when he was hissing and spitting and kicking and feces smearing and throwing things at us and biting. We didn't know if he was going to make it through high school. And yeah. now he's going to go start working on a bachelor's degree. So it has been a long road. And, you know, we're focusing a lot on my younger brother because he's the one that has the more severe behavioral issues. But my my middle brother, uh, who has high-functioning autism um, and some other challenges also, um, he had a lot of challenges growing up that were different from my youngest brother, but then 
he's also brilliant. And now he works at Google and he's basically the smartest person that I know. <laughs> and, he's scary smart. And is making more money than I'll probably ever make. <laughs> and and he's doing phenomenally. And he found this group of supportive people who all have same the similar interests as him. And and he's he's like a flourishing adult who's doing wonderfully. And so watching watching my brothers grow up into successful adults, whatever that means for each of them. Um, and living their lives has been has been really cool, and has been I'm I'm proud of both of them. It's it's been a really neat experience to to watch that happen. Those are good stories to share because I know um, for a lot of families, when they first get the diagnosis, mm-hmm. they think the child's life is over. There's no future. There's no um, higher education. Right. All that is out the door. But this gives people a lot of hope because Definitely. there is a future, especially. Google, mm-hmm. that's incredible. Congratulations! Yeah. So there, there, there could be major accomplishments, Absolutely. bigger accomplishments than the average folk could Definitely. make. And especially well, when you look at my younger son, mm-hmm. I mean, his presentation was just like the typical autistic presentation. He had delayed speech. He had enormous behavioral involvement, and he didn't have these intensive, you know, thirty-hour-a-week behavior programs because that's not what they were doing for kids twenty-five years ago. Right. And um, kids are getting really good at early intervention now and the prognosis for them if they really stick with it can be very very good parents have to hang in there and you know and that know that the potential is there and I think what's been really cool for my youngest brother the one that had the more severe behavioral issues is that in our community he's kind of become like this rock star that all of these all of these parents with kids with special needs they're part of like this Facebook group for kids for parents with kids with special needs and all these parents with young kids who are just starting to get the diagnosis really look up to him and he started babysitting for a lot of these kids and they think of him as this major success story because they see him and go wow my my kid might be driving and going to college someday and so seeing I think for other parents who like you were saying have this worry that it's going to be this life sentence of of not being able to succeed whatever succeed means in their mind seeing somebody like my brother who's overcome a lot of challenges and granted he still has a lot of challenges absolutely absolutely <laughs> but has achieved so much in, despite all that um I think for a lot of parents seeing seeing people like that who are now adults it's it's really exciting for them because they view their own kids being there they see the potential mm-hmm. they definitely see that there is potential whatever it may look like for yeah. their child uh Audrey, you were talking about some resources parents could turn to like the pediatrician or a teacher you're an advocate mm-hmm. what does an advocate do i do different things for different people um i help parents with kids with a variety of needs. I work with parents in terms of accessing services from the regional center here in the state of California or from their local school districts. Um, I work with parents who are trying to access services through early intervention here in the state of California, which would be through the regional center system for zero to three, or through the school district would be ages three to 20, age 22 in some cases, if they're not earning a diploma or until they earn a high school diploma. Um, it, it could be a variety of things. It could be the IEP process, which would be accessing services through special education. Um, that's the majority of what I do, helping them through the IEP process. Um, I work with special education attorneys if, if cases need to go beyond the IEP level to, in terms of accessing programs. I help with placement services. I do observations. 
Um, I'm also involved with a nonprofit. We run parent support group. I, I, along with a special education attorney, run parent support groups through United Cerebral Palsy uh, on a monthly basis. I've been doing about 20 years. It is a free service that we offer to parents to come and ask us questions about special education and the regional center system. So how, that, how can parents find it? Yeah. Um, it's the kenproject.com. It's T-H-E-K-E-N-P-R-O-J-E-C-T dot com and we have monthly meetings on wednesday nights in woodland from, hills. in woodland hills from 7 to 9 p.m and uh it's a free resource for parents to come and ask their questions of a special education advocate and attorney and just come and ask us whatever you need help with we do it that that's just a free resource that we offer to parents because we want to be able to share information and it's completely free so why is it important for a parent with a child with disabilities or exceptional needs to get hooked up with an advocate? There are several reasons why it could be important. One is it's important to start out strong when you're trying to get the assistance for your child. It's always harder when a parent comes to me and says, things didn't start well with the school districts and now I need you to help me fix it. It's always worse if I have to fix a bad situation than it is if I come in and we start out well and we start out doing things correctly. It's always bad if I try to fix mistakes rather than doing it right the first time. That's one situation where it's not great. Um, another thing is it's bad if you already start out with bad blood between the school and the parent. That's never a good situation and I come into those situations frequently. Sometimes parents themselves have disabilities and don't really understand the system or have the ability to do things themselves and need my assistance for that reason. Um, sometimes parents are just overwhelmed. Sometimes I work with a lot of parents who have more than one child with a disability and they just have too much on their plate or they have a child who is in a psychiatric hospital or um, is you know suicidal and they are just on the edge and they just can't do it themselves and they need more assistance than that. One of the other things that I do, because I, I don't work with just children with autism. I work with kids sometimes who need residential placements and those kids are really seriously... Uh, emotionally disturbed and they are in need of residential treatment sometimes outside of the state of California and sometimes a parent is just completely overwhelmed and I can help with those placements as well so that's something that where parents are just on complete overload and they'll come they'll come to me and they they don't want to do those kinds of things by themselves a lot of times well so how can parents find you they can. I have a website. It's andrealorant.com. Can you spell Pretty that? easy. Yeah. A-N-D-R-E-A-L-O-R-A-N-T, like Tom, dot com. And I'm located in the San Fernando Valley in, in Southern California. And like I said, I've been doing this 25 years. And, um, and I don't intend to be going anywhere anytime soon. I plan to keep on doing it. I think another thing that's important to talk about is um, the support that parents need. So talking about having an advocate is a really good resource, all the tools and resources for their kids. But I also want to throw out, you know, especially as therapists, that a lot of times the parents need support too and being open to the idea of going to therapy and being able to get support through the stressors that you're dealing with are really important too. And I've, I know I've worked a lot with parents that have kids with special needs and I think it's important for parents to be able to take care of themselves and help, help themselves to become the best parents they can for their kids. I even tell parents, you don't always need to take an advocate to an IEP. Even just bring a friend for moral support. Mm. You know, don't let it all fall on your shoulders because sometimes it's completely overwhelming. Having a therapist is a great idea. And sometimes people bring their therapist to their IEPs mm. too. That's okay. 
um, or they'll consult with their therapist before they go before or after they go to an IEP. Mm-hmm. Um, but just bring a friend for moral support or take note to take notes for you so you can just listen and let them take your notes. Um, that's that's absolutely okay because it can be an overwhelming experience. I've been to several IEPs with clients and I, I do agree with you. Um, a lot of times what the parent hears and what I hear are very different mm-hmm. and we can discuss it and come up with a list of questions and go mm-hmm. back to um, the principal or the special ed teacher that the child was seeing and get confirmation or um, more ex- a deeper explanation. So I do agree. You do need an extra body in there because a lot of times the information they give you is so vague or ambiguous that there's so many ways to interpret that. Mm-hmm. Another good way to deal with that is you're legally allowed to record your meeting as long as you give 24 hours prior written notice. So you can record. Oh. Yeah. As long as you give them written notice at least a day ahead. So then the ambiguity goes out of it. Oh, I didn't. That's yeah. some good information yeah. to know. Yeah, so then there's no question what was said by who. And I would imagine there would be a lot of issues, uh, co-parenting issues that might mm-hmm. come up mm-hmm. when one parent absolutely wants to take one road and the other parent wants to take another road in terms of the child's education or whatnot. How should parents handle that? They have to come to a consensus, and it should not happen in front of the kid. Right. It, definitely, if there's going to be any kind of discussion, it's got to happen behind closed doors somewhere else. So, I mean, in my case, because my background was education, my husband basically said, I'm going to defer to you. You're the expert in this field, and I'm, I'm going to let you make these decisions. So that, that made it pretty easy. It was like he said, okay, I'm going to support you in whatever decisions you make on whatever's going to happen with the kids and the, and the educational choices. So that's kind of how we did it. In terms of parenting skills, that's a different decision. Right. But in terms of the educational decisions, those were kind of left in my court. So that was pretty easy to proceed with. So it sounds like your suggestion for parents is to, if they're not on the same page or something, the most important thing is to get on the same, on page, the same page, but not in front of the not kids. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Which figure I, out, I agree with. Figure out a way to get on the same page or make a compromised position mm-hmm. somewhere, somehow. Yeah. And not in front of the kids. Right. Yes. I guess my last question for you is, aside from being an advocate, you were talking about like the kinds of support that parents need, especially mm-hmm. parents who have kids with challenges. What's, what do you think for you as a parent, just as the role of being a parent, has been the most important thing for you to keep in mind, to keep your sanity, to be able to work on your own self-care in the midst of all of the chaos of, of parenting and dealing with these challenges? I think taking time for myself, going to dinner and movies, getting massages. To me, massages are so important. I, I, think, mean, I, I think I listed that as my most important that's self-care, too. If, if I had to, once a month. Honestly, yep. if I had to prioritize, massages would be that's number so one, and getting out to dinner and movies would be number two. We must be related. <laughs> Seriously, that's for me, that's, I mean, massage, that's like, that's my therapy. This has been very informative. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. And uh, yeah, if you if you are looking for an advocate or you need any sort of support, um, you can Google the special education advocate in your local area and look and see what you can find. Thank you, Andrea. This is Dr. Serene and Dr. Jen asking, is it bedtime yet? 